0: Um, and also I want to encourage you to to find your place of ministry in these days. We are coming upon a season in the church where we need volunteers like we've never needed volunteers before, whether that's in the nursery, whether that's in help with the teens, whether that's in Wednesday meals or helping to lead a class, whatever it would be, let us know in the office that you are willing to help, and we'll find a place for you uh, to serve and also for the uh, the meeting for church membership you don't have to be uh, interested in church membership to come if you just want to know more about what the church believes just come and join us saturday morning the 27th uh, here at, at the church i want to thank you for your continued uh, faithful attendance and giving during this time of transition and just pray that god would bless you as we celebrate what this community means to us let's pray before we come to god's word father we thank you for this section of your word and pray that as we delve into it in these coming weeks that you would guide us help us to see your face as uh, paul inspired by your spirit writes to the church may we recognize that we are that church we need you and we need all that you have for us in the name of christ amen in the weeks that I'm sharing with us, I'm going to be delving into Ephesians because I think it is so focused on uh, the theme of unity and the grace of God in our lives and something I think we are really needing to focus on in these days. Uh, our world is in deep need of a positive attitude and we as the, the church, we as Christians, are to lead the way in that grace the positive love that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And Paul, in writing to the Ephesians and the other churches that this letter went to, in very personal and practical terms, gives positive affirmation. Commentator Goodspeed talked about Ephesians and said it's the great rhapsody on the worth of Christian salvation, what it means to know God's saving grace. When I think of the term salvation, I wanna go back to uh, David's Psalm 51 for a few minutes before we jump back to Ephesians. David had just turned his back on the God who had saved him, anointed him, placed him in this position of leadership. He had committed adultery, and on top of that, the murder of Uriah. We recognize that David was acting more like a tyrant than the anointed king of God. And Nathan the prophet confronts him on all of this, and this, to David's credit, and why he's a man after God's own heart, is his confession. When he comes to the Lord, I know my transgressions, my sin is always before me. And a very interesting verse, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. Well, he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against all the people, he sinned against everyone else, but compared to the fact that he sinned against God, the others pale in significance. Our sin, whatever that sin is, and whoever is affected by that sin, is against God first and foremost because it breaks that relationship. And David then pleads with God to bring that relationship back. Surely I've been a sinner from birth, sinful from the time I was conceived, Cleanse me, wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and a right and steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. And here's the connection. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The joy of salvation is something I need to come back to at every opportunity. There is a tendency as we come farther and farther from that day of salvation that we will take it for granted. David in the midst of his sin says, restore the joy. Help me see your salvation in my life, what it means for me. And I think we each need to pray that prayer along with him whether it's in the midst of sin and rebellion, or whether in the midst of even our obedience and the routine of our walk with Christ, remember the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. And as we come to this Ephesians passage, it is just an overflowing avalanche of joy. The uh, starting at verse three and through 14, the verses that Valerie read for us are all one sentence in the Greek. He just, he just cannot stop talking about the abundance of the grace of God. Themes of adoption, forgiveness, the work of the Holy Spirit, resurrection, uh, our unity in Christ, the church as agents and ambassadors of Christ's unity. The church must be at the center of this a positive approach that we bring to our world. And that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church and others. People already know what they don't believe what they need to know is what they must believe in order to be part of God's eternal plan. So we need to be based on the uh, the positives of Christ as we come into our world. Certain scriptures in history cry out to certain times. I think as, as Martin Luther was looking at the, the church in his time and what led to the Reformation, uh, he pointed out in his introduction to the Book of Romans in his commentary, how crucial this is to a sick and corrupt church and a strong doctrine, a strong view of God is necessary that we might come into what was then the Reformation. I read first Peter, anytime there is warfare, anytime there are Christians suffering and being persecuted for their faith, that's a scripture that speaks to us. In our nuclear age in the fragile world in which we live, we might soon live within the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. One thing I'm sure of, and as we come to Ephesians, we live in a negative era. And we need to live by positive affirmation in the midst of the negativity that surrounds us. And Paul just gives that everywhere we turn. Ephesians is one of the prison epistles, which is interesting to keep in mind when we think that Paul is essentially on death row. He knows his time is near. And he writes these uh, four letters, the little short letter, to Philemon, because Onesimus, the runaway slave, is being returned to him in Colossae. He writes Colossians, he writes Ephesians, and also Philippians, filled with hope and love. And as we think about that, and this is some of the last things that Paul wrote, it is uh, the mature doctrine that he wants to share with us. The Ephesian church was founded on Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, you know Apollos had been there, had been preaching, but Apollos didn't really know the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He was still preaching John's baptism. And so when Paul learns about that in Corinth, first of all, they fill Apollos in on the, the fullness of life in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. But then Paul walks the journey from Corinth to Ephesus. And the first question when he arrives, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And these 12 apostles of Apollos at this point, these 12 men that the church was starting with, said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? He said, what baptism were you baptized into? He said, John's baptism. And so he began to explain about Jesus and they were baptized into the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit with the signs of the day of Pentecost. And so this Ephesian Pentecost begins, and there in Acts chapter 19, after two years, Paul with them. Paul, who usually measures his stay in weeks and days, stays two years, and they're ministering during this time, and this is the phrase. At the end of that two years, all the Jews and Greeks in Asia heard the word of the Lord. It's a pretty big outreach that was starting from Ephesus and flowing out from there. It was such a great impact that the... uh, the Ephesian silversmiths who made their living making the little idols to the Artemis God. Their business was falling off because everybody was becoming Christians. Nobody was buying their idols anymore. So they had this huge riot where they chanted for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians and trying to whip the crowd into a frenzy and certainly succeeded in doing that. The word of the Lord impacted a community. And then if you read in Acts chapter 20, the farewell with the Ephesian elders, you see Paul's heart for this group that he writes to. But in all the prison epistles, we get a sense of Paul's heart and that he knows his time is is running short. When he writes to Philemon, he says, I'm sending back to you Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And now I'm sending back to you as a brother in Christ. He writes to Philippians and says near the end of that letter, even now my life is being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. He refers in the Ephesian letter near the end. He says, pray that I will continue to declare God's truth fearlessly as I should. So, Epaphras had brought word of trouble from Ephesus. He comes to Paul getting some advice. Our church is having some struggling days. What advice can you send us? And so Paul sends Tychicus back with a letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. And in Colossians, he says, remember my chains. It's clear that he expects a big change fairly soon. There are others who are with him there in Rome in the prison Mark and Aristarchus and Luke and Demas are still standing by with Paul. I would urge you in these days when we look at the Ephesian letter to read Colossians kind of as a sister letter, because it's likely that Paul wrote the Colossian letter because of the needs that Epaphras expresses for that local church, and then writes a a wider letter uh, to the Ephesians and beyond because the early manuscripts don't really have the word Ephesus at the start of it. It's likely it was a circular letter that was meant to be passed around and may have ended up in Ephesus. And so we see Paul's thoughts poured out. So you can switch to that next slide. We want us to see uh, our positive salvation and the flow of thoughts that come in what Christ has done and what our response is to be to what Christ has done. It starts with the, the salutation there at the start of the letter. Grace and peace, this unmerited favor of God which comes to us and gives us a sense of lasting contentment. Oh, I pray for that in my heart and in yours, that we would know the grace of God and that would bring that peace that he promises. But then immediately his thoughts begin to flow out in this one long sentence from verses three to 14. He begins with positivity and, and very, very joyful even more impressive that it's written from death row. (laughs) He says, God gives us blessings in heaven and now. In in one of the definite passages in my life, some years back when I got into my 70s and started realizing,
1: whoa, days are numbered.
0: I used to think this was really old. (laughs) But my focus has changed on the blessings of God here and the hope of heaven. Knowing that those years are numbered, enjoying the relationships of God and his people, enjoying my relationship with the Father, and knowing that that transition is coming. When so often in our lives, when we're younger, we just kind of ignore that and put us off and we feel, you know, invulnerable and we're never gonna age and never gonna die how crucial it is to know the blessings, not only now, but the blessings of heaven. I had a great gentleman on my staff, one of my churches, he was nearing 100 years old, and, and he said, the, the older I get, you know, faith, hope, and love, I read that chapter, but the more I get closer to heaven, the more hope rises in that trio <laughs> to what's coming and what God has in store for those who are his. Paul talks about Christians as being a special people. We are adopted as the children of God. Three of our grandchildren are adopted, and and, uh, one was a, uh, a crack baby in downtown LA. And often when I see his smile and his energy and his exuberance, I think, what might his life have been? What might our lives have been had we not been adopted? by God, welcomed into his family with all of the benefits, all of the inheritance of his son. We are his children. Paul speaks about freedom in in Christ, the forgiveness through the cross, the wisdom that is available to us and into our lives. He just pours out all these possibilities for us. So I'm going to the next. I want us to see the, the continuity here of the Godhead. Because we see, if you do a study of these verses, the work of the Father is pretty well spoken of in verses 3 through 6, and then the work of the Son in redemption in 7 through 12, and then the work of the Holy Spirit in 13 and 14. Not only do we see him pouring out what God has done for us, but he demonstrates the unity of the Godhead in Father, Son, and Spirit, and then says we are folded into that. Remember we spent some time months back in the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. And when he prays in the upper room for us, he prays that we would be one just as the Godhead is one. And that the Spirit lives within us, and so we are in that unity. Peter says we participate in the very divine nature to make us one as we are one. And in that prayer, in chapter 17 of John, he says, I pray that you would be united not so that you'll just enjoy the unity of the body of Christ, that you would be united so that others will believe the message you are sharing. Our unity sends a message to our world. They're not going to come to the church if we bicker and fight all the time. But if they sense a unity and behold how they love one another, that's winsome. That draws people to Christ. You'll see that same thing in in Colossians when he talks about the the mystery that's kept hidden for generations is now revealed within you, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in this long sentence, (laughs) 11 times in these verses, we have the phrase in Christ or in him. 11 times in that short span, that one sentence. We reside in him. If I remain in you and your words re, his words remain in me, I'm with him. I abide in him. I live in him. I have two addresses. One over on Pendleton Street, a mile and a half away, and in Christ. <laughs> you have a place where you reside, but we live in Christ. And he in us. And this unity that we share is Christ within us that unites us. We're not here because we all have the same interests, the same likes, the same dislikes. We are here because of God's love and what we find in Christian community. So God provides grace and peace, and we trust and obey that he will guide us into that. God's purpose before time began was unity. Christ's purpose on the cross was unity, that we might be one as they are one. And now the Holy Spirit continues in us to work that unity. And at the same time, we're trying to demonstrate unity, the world is in chaos. If we are in Christ, unbelievers are in chaos, in, in the midst of all kinds of views of the world and opinions about life. Disunity remains one of the single most dominant facts of our world. Walls are built all around us, visible and invisible. We've divided the world into races and religions, labor and management, the haves, the have-nots. We've built boundaries economically, politically, socially, ecologically, spiritually. People of one country are trained to hate people of another country, people of one family to hate another, people of one business to hate another, people of one faith to hate another. In the midst of that kind of division, we are called to demonstrate unity. And so one of Paul's driving concerns is that we would see that we are united in Christ. Jesus has come to reverse that trend of building walls. He breaks down walls between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between male and female, between saint and sinner. He wants to break down walls among us that we might demonstrate what unity is about. And I think people might be tired of living life from a negative outlook. We can have ultimate confidence in our message that what we share with our world is the power of God. i share you an illustration uh, about confidence from the 1986 Major League Baseball All-Star Game. 38 years ago, Roger Clemens' first All-Star Game, he's pitching for the American League, uh, very unusual as an all-star game because he actually got to bat. You know, American League pitchers, you know, for 13 years before that had learned that you don't need a bat to be a pitcher in the American League. So here's Clemens. The American League had this great rally and he happens to come up and they don't remove him because he had not really had a chance to finish his innings of pitching yet. So he's there with the bat not knowing what to do and Dwight Gooden's on the mound and Gooden throws a 100-mile-an-hour 100, 100 fastball by him. He listens to it go by and just <laughs> steps back and laughs. And he looks at Gary Carter, the catcher for the National League, and says, do my pitchers look like that? And Carter says, you bet they do. So he listened to two more strikes go by, and then went and sat on the bench. But when he went out the next inning to pitch, he said, I had so much more confidence. And he pitched two perfect innings to finish off his section of the All-Star game and got the win for the American League. And I started thinking about the confidence we have in the message It's not our opinions that we're sharing with somebody. We're telling them the truth of God in Jesus Christ. This saves people. (laughs) This transforms lives. We come with the authority of God in Christ Jesus. But as far as you can get from Roger Clemens is uh, E. Stanley Jones. (laughs) Wonderful missionary to India. If you haven't read E. Stanley Jones' work, get into his books. Amazing, amazing books. But the one that struck me the most was the one that he wrote, didn't really write it, but it dictated to his daughter after his massive stroke, which debilitated him completely. His daughter, after months of his slurred speech, was able to kind of interpret the things he was saying. And he dictated her his book, which is called The Divine Yes. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. And the phrase that jumps out of that book to me he says to his daughter, and she writes it down in the book, all these years I've been preaching sermons, now I get to live a sermon. We live the message of God before our family, our friends, our neighbors, our acquaintances, the strangers on the street. We live that in front of them. If they're going to be drawn to Christ, it will be Because of the influence of a Christian. Someone who has demonstrated what the love of Christ is all about. And we are called to be an affirming, loving, united people to the glory of God. So we can go to that fourth slide. Our calling here, what God has called us to. In verse four, it says, we are called to live holy and blameless lives. I love the word blameless doesn't mean faultless. Oh, fault is there. doesn't mean sinless. Sin is there. But he has taken the blame. (laughs) He has carried my sin. And we are to live holy and blameless lives and demonstrate it to our world. In verse 5, live up to the task of being a child of God. What does it mean to be a child of God? Show gratitude. Enjoy your life. (laughs) Rejoice in who God is and let others know what the source of that joy is. In verse 7, we're to be thankful for our redemption. In verse 10, find unity under the lordship of Christ. Verses 11 through 13, it talks about predestination. I've got all kinds of notes in my Bible from Reuben's class on Ephesians. (laughs) He says, this is the vocabulary of sovereignty. This is God speaking to us. He says, don't fuss over predestination. We're not talking about you know, absolute or unconditional predestination that takes away free will. He says, what we can become is what is predestined. And then it comes out in verse 13 when we read, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked with him in the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. We recognize that God makes available to us this incredible faith, and once we've received it, it's our joy to offer it to others. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's our guarantee. The word speaks of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. This is not just some upward wish. This is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit who has come to win us. It gives us a perspective on life. One other psalm of David that I want to refer to this morning is Psalm 39. And the fourth verse of that psalm, he says, Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. I think that's kind of what I was referring to in my own aging process. You know, show me, Lord, what's coming. Alfred Nobel, at the end of the 19th century, the Swedish chemist, woke up one morning quite shocked as he read the newspaper and his obituary was in it. (laughs) And this is what it said. This was the obituary. Inventor, Albert Nobel, Alfred Nobel, inventor of dynamite, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. And he died a rich man. It was actually Alfred's brother, older brother, who had passed. And the reporter assumed it was the more famous Nobel, and wrote up his obituary. But it was that obituary that spurred him on, said, I don't want to be remembered that way, and initiated the Nobel Prize for scientists and writers who work for peace rather than war. If we don't examine our life, where does it go? If I continue down the road I'm on, where will I end up? It's a crucial question for all of us. And Ephesians 1 says... Where we end up is guaranteed in the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, he is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So we accept the temporary until the eternal comes. We accept the partial unity until we are one with him in glory. And the continuing work of the Holy Spirit is ours. What better way to demonstrate this unity in Christ than to come to the Lord's table together? And knowing this was Communion Sunday, I wanted us to think about what that means. That now, you know, until that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father... Now we voluntarily bow that knee. We voluntarily say thank you for what you have given me. We rejoice in it. We receive it. And then we pass it on. We give that love as an expression of the love of Christ to our world. To say yes to ourselves as part of this Christian community. To say yes to our church. And all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Pastor Matt's going to come and lead us In communion this morning, let's recognize the incredible gift that is ours in Jesus Christ.